Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Our schedules keep us busy, so it's natural that many of us take a basic skill like reading for granted. So much around us centers on literacy, from understanding assignments at work and school to interpreting road signs or deciding what products to buy at the grocery store. Today, where we live, we explore adult literacy. 36 million, 36 million adults have trouble reading and writing, according to national statistics. We're going to be speaking with a national nonprofit, Pro Literacy, coming up. First, are you someone who struggled to read as an adult? Did you know where to reach out for help, or did you keep it a secret? We want to hear from you, too. You can join our conversation today. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Now, a member of the community actually pitched this show idea to us, uh, saying adult literacy doesn't get discussed a lot in our society. We're going to talk more about why that is in a few minutes, but we wanted to begin by hearing a first-person account of someone who struggled to read as an adult. So I want to welcome into our studios here Comey Ogbenohevi, who's a Hartford resident. Comey, welcome to our show. Thank you. So Comey, tell us a little bit about your personal story. So you're actually from Togo, a country in West Africa. Tell us about where you come from and when you ended up in Connecticut. I came from Togo, in a country in West Africa. I got here almost two years. I won a lottery visa. In 2017, you yeah. came to, to the U.S.? Uh, so um, you won a visa, so you're able to come to this country. So what was that like, uh, to come to a new place? At the beginning, I was a little bit scared because I don't know what I had to deal with, the expectation. And I had kind of pressure on me, all my families, and I'm going to start a new life with new people, a new culture, people don't, I don't know. I don't really know what is special, but when I got here, everything went smoothly with me, hmm. for me. So at first you were scared, uh, a lot of pressure on you, but once you arrived here in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, you felt a little bit better. So tell us what your English uh, ability was uh, when you arrived. Did you know any English? Were you able to read or write English? Yes. When I was back home uh, in Togo, I studied American literature. My reading and uh, writing skills are good, but I had difficulty to explain myself. Then when I got here, I set a goal for myself. I said uh, in six months, I can speak fluently. Then I did it. So uh, many of us are uh, familiar with learning a foreign language, so say in school, and so we learn maybe basic uh, Spanish or French, but once we uh, go to a foreign country where that language is spoken, it's hard to uh, feel confident to speak what you have learned. So you said you set a goal for yourself. How did you find help to learn better English? Literacy volunteer helped me a lot. When I got there, I was little shy, and the children say, ah, you're starting a new life. Don't be shy. We are here to help you. They come to me. You got to talk. 
And if you have something, just say, if not correct, we just correct you. It will help you to improve yourself. And I did it. So you just mentioned Literacy Volunteers of Greater Hartford. So this is the nonprofit organization uh, that um, you heard about. Uh, who told you about this group? It's my uncle. When I got here, he said, seeing you do how to work now, you can start taking some class at Literacy Volunteer. Two days when I got here, he brought me at LVGH. I signed the paper, and the next week I start with the classes. So in studio with us is someone from Literacy Volunteers who helped Comey, and her name is C.J. House. She's executive director of Literacy Volunteers of Greater Hartford. C.J., welcome to our show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So uh, Comey was telling us his uncle actually brought him to uh, Literacy uh, Volunteers uh, to get better with English skills. So is that a common referral where community members know someone who's struggling and they say, hey, I know of a nonprofit that can help you? It's very common. Most of our students come to us through family members, through someone who is a student. Interestingly, uh, we're seeing a lot of students coming through Facebook as well. They'll be messaging us through Facebook as well. Um, But when Comey first arrived at Literacy Volunteers, he was very quiet. He was very shy. Um, He was afraid to speak and to have observed and been able to witness his journey from from that scared person uh, who arrived here with no family here. And uh, to blossom into who he is today is just uh, one of the magical things we get to we get to do at Literacy Volunteers. Uh, when uh, new immigrants come to this country, one of the first things besides finding a place to live is they need to find a job. And so to not be able to uh, understand what someone's saying or to read instructions, that can be a real barrier. Absolutely. It, you know, one of the things I love most about what we're able to do is really get to the root of helping someone become independent. Once you have a command of the language, once you can communicate, uh, so many other things become possible, including getting a job, learning how to take the bus to get to that job. So, uh, uh, Comey, how often were you going to literacy volunteers to uh, get better uh, with your reading and writing uh, during the week? At the beginning, every morning, Tuesday and Thursday morning, then uh, Monday and Wednesday afternoon, and now uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And when you went uh, to Literacy Volunteers, did you have the same person helping you each time, or I'm just curious about the people that helped you when you when you went there? Yes, the same people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, CJ, tell us about uh, who the people are. Many are volunteers? Many are volunteers. We have about 225 volunteers um, between our two centers. We have a center in Hartford and a center in East Hartford. Comey started with us taking classes, taking English as, you know, for speakers of other languages, the SOL classes. We start with wherever the student is and whatever the student's strengths are and whatever the student needs. So uh, Comey needed to learn English, uh, to speak English. His reading and writing skills are actually quite good and are still quite good, even better. But Comey also worked with our career pathways facilitator, who is a person who helps our students once they have a, enough of a grasp of the language to make that bridge between what's your next step. Your next step may be getting a job. Um, in Comey's case, it was getting a job. It was also going on to college. So there, there's a staff of about, we have 12 professionals, um, educators, career counselors who, uh, who are there. And then we have the 225 volunteers who do everything from teaching the classes, teaching uh, whether it's English for speakers of other languages or math or citizenship or basic literacy, um, digital literacy. Um, we have labs where, where our volunteers are teaching there too. Whatever issues get in the way of someone getting to their goal, 
there's somebody there that will help them get that pathway. I understand, uh, Comey, you're now in college. So by connecting with literacy volunteers, that helped you uh, know how to apply? Yeah, they helped me. After with uh, the career pathway facilitator, at the beginning, we were trying to get the GAG. Then I told him, I've been at the college back home. He said, oh, that's good. You don't have to pass the GAG. I know some people at Capital that can help you get in college, and we did it. So you're now a freshman at Capital Community College, right in uh, downtown Hartford. But you're also working. Tell us about where you work. I'm working at Dunkin' Donuts and downtown Central Row. And uh, you mentioned that uh, you started going there, but you're still going to literacy volunteers to continue to, to strengthen your skills. Uh, so what is your your goal, uh, Comey, once you graduate? Right now, my goal is get in law college, and I have people that are helping me now to achieve those goals. Uh, last year at the gala, I met some lawyers, and that are still talking with right now. Mm-hmm. They are trying to help me to navigate uh, through my goal, with my goal. So you want to go to law school uh, yes. after uh, completing at Capital Community College. Uh, CJ, he mentioned a gala, so this was an event where uh, people heard Comey's story for Absolutely. the literacy volunteers. So every year we have an annual gala. Our gala this year will be on March 30th. Um, last year, Comey spoke and told his story to about 250 of our supporters, of our stakeholders, of our donors. And uh, Comey was a little bit more nervous then than he, he was today to come on to the show. Um, and by the end of the speech, he actually went back up and didn't ad lib. Um, so that was the point at which we realized that Comey's confidence level was, uh, was growing as well. So he told his story. And I think one of the important things about having students tell their story is that it's th- this is very often a hidden population. People don't see uh, people who are... Uh, learning English as another language or or, or, or low literate um, and can read or write. And to know how hard that is and what a challenge it is to come and and do that. And we're going to be hearing more about some of the challenges that people in the United States face who have trouble reading and writing. But I do want to thank uh, Comey Ogbenohevi uh, from Hartford, who again uh, was taking and still taking uh, English classes at Literacy Volunteers of Greater Hartford. Uh, Comey, you didn't seem nervous at all. I thought you did a great job. It's hard to talk on the radio. I'm confident now. (laughs) (laughs) Comey's real goal is he's going to be our next ambassador. That's, that's, we're going to get him to the UN. That's it. <laughs> well, Comey, thank you again for coming in to talk with us. It's a pleasure. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, today, we're talking more about uh, the tr- many Americans, 36 million Americans, in fact, who struggle to read and write. We're going to talk about why that is and why that rate hasn't gone down in recent years. We also want to hear from you. Are you someone who struggled with reading and writing as an adult? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're focusing on literacy. Did you know across the U.S., 36 million Americans have difficulty reading? Does that number surprise you? Are you one of them? Join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we just heard from a student at uh, Literacy Volunteers of Greater Hartford, uh, someone who came to this country from Togo uh, who needed help strengthening uh, his English uh, skills. Uh, CJ House is in studio with me. She's executive director of this Connecticut-based nonprofit 
nonprofit literacy volunteers of Greater Hartford. So it sounds like uh, many of your students are new immigrants, but does it mean that all of them are? No, many of our students are new immigrants, about two-thirds of our students. And the other third are students who can speak English but can't read or write it. And that population may be individuals who come from an English-speaking country where they did not have access to education. But I think the sad part is that it is also a significant portion of that population are people who are uh, graduates of the K-12 through system here in the States who are graduating high school and unable to read and write. Uh, We talked about this national statistic, but maybe uh, let's just uh, drill down more into what you were just saying, CJ, about locally. I mean, how many adults in Hartford struggle with reading? So our city is in in a crisis. The newest statistics that we have indicate that there are about 70 percent, seven zero, 70 percent of Hartford adults are reading below a, a sixth grade level and about a little over 40% are reading below a third grade level. So the impact that that has on a community, we can talk about the impact on an individual, um, but the impact on a community, with low literacy comes poverty, with low literacy comes increased hospitalization. Um, And the saddest piece is that uh, the best predictor of a child's literacy level is that child's parents' literacy level. So it is a generational um, crisis. We, we just absolutely have no choice but, but to address. that. That's kind of the bad news, the scary news. The good news is when we tackle this problem, um, it has a wonderful domino effect. It's a keystone skill. You learn to read. You learn to write. You learn to communicate. You can get a job. You can you know, access health care. It, it impacts a whole lot of other social issues that we deal with. Uh, maybe uh, walk us through uh, more of that. At the start of the show I talked about, it's easy for us to take for granted that reading is a basic skill, right? Because words are around us uh, each and every day. We have to communicate with people. So uh, walk us through uh, someone's day where they're coming across different scenarios. And if they are low literate, uh, that can be a problem. So I, I like to think about it if you are going, if you're traveling which is a fun thing to do as opposed to trying to get through your life, but you're traveling and you're all of a sudden dumped in a country that you don't know the language. What's the first thing you do? You look for someone who speaks English because it's really hard to figure out the train schedule, figure out uh, how to get to your hotel. Um, For someone who is low literate in this country, for the most part, many, many of our students have developed strategies to manage. And you probably know someone who's low literate, but... uh, they're not going to tell. And, and, and you, you haven't seen it because, you know, they go to fill out a form. They'll go, oh, I can't fill out the form. I need my glasses. But the kinds of practical things that someone will face, you get a prescription for your child. Can you read it? Do you know if it's oral or oral? Does it go in the child's mouth? Does it go in the child's ear? Can you read a bus schedule? Can you get from here to there to get to, to your work? Um, you know, we lived in a society where uh, there were a lot of jobs where you didn't need to read or write. In studio with me is C.J. House, Executive Director of Literacy Volunteers of Greater Hartford. Uh, it's a Connecticut-based uh, nonprofit. As we talk about adult illiteracy, uh, are you one of uh, many Americans, uh, 36 million Americans who struggle to read and write? How has that impacted you uh, in uh, your life? You can join our conversation. Chris is calling from North Brantford. Chris, go ahead. I'm extremely, extremely dyslexic. I've had trouble reading and writing pretty much all my life. Growing up, I went to uh, two schools that specialize in LD, uh, learning disabilities. One was in uh, Southport, Connecticut. The other one was a high school in Hardwick, Mass, called Eagle Hill School. And right now, I decided to go back to school. 
and I am in paramedic school, which is no easy task. And I just wanted to kind of talk about some of the things that I use to uh, help me to kind of get through some of the uh, heavy reading I have to do. Sure, go ahead. So all of our books come with, um, they're narrated, um, and I found that that is an amazing tool. When you have to read, you know, a few hundred pages a night or something like that, um, it allows me to get through a lot of material. And for the books that I don't have on tape, I, you know, if there's a, a medical word I'm unfamiliar with, dictionary.com has a lot of pronunciation uh, tools where you could type the word in and it will actually uh, spit it out to you in a, so you can hear it. When I have to do run forms, which are like a, a patient care report, you have to write up everything that you've done to a patient. Text to talk again is a, an amazing tool, and sometimes it doesn't pick it up quite well. So one of the things that you can do is that you can actually have it read it back to you. And these are just some of the tools that I've used uh, to kind of make myself successful. Well, thank you, Chris, for uh, talking about that with us uh, here on Where We Live. Coming up, we're going to talk more about uh, the role that technology can play in helping adults who are low literate. Uh, But Chris uh, mentioned, uh, CJ, that he is uh, extremely dyslexic. And so when your volunteers encounter adults who have learning disabilities, uh, maybe mental health issues, how do you navigate that? Our program is uh, is center-based. All of our classes happen in one of our two literacy centers. Um, There is a a lot of good reasons for that, one of which is if a volunteer comes across a situation, whether it's a a learning disability situation or mental health situation, um, there are professionals right there on staff to intervene who know how to help. Um, I do want to thank Chris who called in because one of the great things that happens when you're in a class and have a community, you have people like Chris in your class with you um, who have been struggling with the same kinds of issues who come up with great strategies for dealing with it. So there is that sharing of peer-to-peer. So that also happens um, in class, things like what Chris just, just said. You mentioned you have uh, two centers, one in Hartford and one in, in East Hartford. When I think of individual communities, and there are many in Connecticut, uh, oftentimes uh, community uh, centers, senior centers, libraries are places people feel comfortable to seek out help. So how do you get um, into those places? So we have a network out there of, of all kinds of providers, libraries, schools, um, who feed refer people over to us. Um, there is a model of literacy, an, an old literacy volunteer model, where um, you know most people think about one one on one teaching in a you know one one tutor and one student in a library working on a book. Um, we don't do that um, because adults learn better in groups. Um, because in a center, um, and our centers are. Uh, both of them are on a, multiple bus lines, so they're very accessible. Um, but in a center, you can uh, provide a, a, a real sense of community, which we know helps adults keep coming to class. That's one of the big challenges. Um, when you're an adult and you're going to school, you have a whole lot of other things going in your life. Um, I always like to say, you know, how many of us start on Monday and say, I'm going to go to the gym three times this week? And how many of us get to the gym three times a week? Well, these are people who are committing to come to class three, four, five times a week. Um, along with work, along with managing their families. So having a community of people, uh, students and tutors, volunteers, um, who are right there, who are looking forward to seeing you, who want you to be there in class, um, who are going to give you grief if you don't show up, um, that is an incentive um, to get people to come. So there really isn't the necessity, and and it actually isn't a great model, uh, service delivery model, to have people all over the place. 
Um, we also are able to support our tutors. Um, you know, again, I, as I say, we've got educators on staff. Um, and there's an accountability measure where we know what's going on in the classrooms, what's working, what's not working, how we can intervene to make it better, a better experience for the student. You're listening uh, to Where We Live. Uh, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest in studio is C.J. House, Executive Director of Literacy Volunteers of Greater Hartford. As we talk about uh, the problem of adult illiteracy, uh, we keep uh, mentioning this, uh, how this is a problem nationwide. So I wanted to bring into the conversation Kevin Morgan, President and CEO of ProLiteracy. This is actually an international nonprofit based in Syracuse, New York. Kevin, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've been talking to uh, CJ from Literacy Volunteers of Greater Hartford. This is a, a part, uh, our member of pro-literacy. So let's talk a little bit about why adult illiteracy is not often discussed in our society, Kevin. You know, I, I think a lot of times uh, when we talk about education, we want to focus on childhood education. And the the irony is that um, adult literacy impacts childhood education. So uh, you had mentioned why why hasn't this number decreased uh, earlier in your program, and one of the reasons is that children whose parents have low literacy levels uh, they have a 72 percent chance of being at the low reading level themselves, and so it perpetuates itself as they go through the school system. Eventually, a lot of these children become adults with low literacy levels. So. Uh, it doesn't get a lot of attention, and you know one of the things uh, that pro literacy does, aside from research and developing educational content and professional development for our members, is is advocacy. So um, we're thrilled that you're talking about this today because we need to shine a light on this. It doesn't get a lot of attention, but yet uh, it has the ability um, to really have economic impact in a lot of different areas for for the country. Uh, so when we uh, talk about adult illiteracy, often in Connecticut we talk about education disparities and the fact that um, uh, children in cities uh, are doing uh, are, are not meeting uh, educational standards uh, compared to uh, the wealthy suburbs. Uh, when we were talking about doing this show, uh, Kevin, uh, the question always comes up, right? Like if somebody can't read, how are they able to then in the in school system be promoted to the next grade and the next grade? I mean, I, I mean, how do we get to that fundamental route because eventually they will be adults who are low literate. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because we've we've interviewed a lot of adult learners over the years, and the one thing that you hear over and over again is, um, first of all, they're they're smart individuals, um, and they recognized early on. A lot of times we hear by the time they were in third grade, they realized they were behind and they were never going to catch up. And so they melted into the back of the classroom, hoping no one would ever call on them, and they get passed along. And then uh, before you know it, they're, they're adults. And so I think um, it, it can be addressed in the school system, but it really has to be addressed. There has to be a parallel path that addresses the adult literacy issue. Otherwise, you'll just keep you know, facing the situation um, where we're looking at trying to improve K through 12 test scores, but in reality, we have to also look at increasing adult literacy rates as well. Uh, Kevin, you mentioned the economic impact uh, beyond uh, the individual um, who is struggling. How uh, the fact that 36 million Americans are low literate, how is that impacting us uh, based on uh, the economic opportunities that are available? Well, it's a global economy now, and um, you know, there was a great study that came out in 2013, um, the program for the International Assessment of Adult Competencies. And 
It measured 24 developing countries' um, reading, numeracy, and the ability to interact with technology on a daily basis. It's a great study. Um, It should have set off alarm bells in Washington when it came out in 2013. Ironically, the reason it didn't was the government was shut down in 2013 uh, when the study came out. But the United States really was way down uh, among 24 developing countries. So when you're looking at um, the workforce, the quality of the workforce, economic development, um, if you increase adult literacy rates, it has a positive impact, not only on economic development, but poverty, uh, crime, and a host of other social issues that you read in the headlines every day. Um, so it's, it needs to be addressed not only from a federal and state level, but also from a private sector uh, level. Right now, you've got a situation where we've got effectively full employment in this country. You have a labor shortage, and the answer is to bring in traditionally marginalized uh, adults who, um, you know, have a lower education, high school dropouts, low literacy adults, former inmates, and bring them into the workforce uh, through education. Um, one of your uh, member organizations is in studio with us uh, here on Where We Live, and that's C.J. House, Executive Director of Literacy Volunteers of Greater Hartford. So how do you do your work? Who's supporting your nonprofit, C.J.? We are very fortunate in that our funding is diverse. We have uh, state, state funding. Um, we have private funding. We have some wonderful individual donors. Um, I think this community benefits significantly from the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, um, which is uh, doesn't only um, send out money, but also uh, is very engaged in resolving the problem and getting people together. Um, I think, you know, t- talking a little bit more about what Kevin was saying is the approach to this issue uh, can't come from one sector. Um, and it, it is not, it's complex. Um, the You know, the K through 12 system can't fix it. Um, digital literacy, much as we would love to have a magic bullet that would fix it, it can't. Um, we need to have a, a community response. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I, personally, um, my education was very European as opposed to American. And I think that the American K-12 system needs to take a good hard look uh, at beginning with the student and the student's strengths um, as opposed to beginning with a test score and trying to get a student to a test score. Mm-hmm. Um, but it needs to be a, uh, an effort that comes from many different angles. Um, you know, when we have an individual student coming in who needs to learn English, that's a beginning point. Um, but that individual then also needs help to uh, get to the next point, which may be um, it may be something as simple as being able to participate in a parent-teacher conference and teaching them the skills that, of advocacy that they need to do when they go into that parent-teacher conference. Another path may be job skills. You know, to, we have a couple of job training programs that they can be in. Um, career counseling, figuring out what's out there. In Connecticut, we have a skills gap, but we have really a skills misalignment um, where we actually have people who have high school diplomas, who have college diplomas. They just don't happen to be in the fields in which the industries in Connecticut need them to be in. I was thinking um, often uh, is discussed here in Connecticut are uh, the defense contractors that are looking for adults who can uh, do these jobs. And so right. there's there's uh, partnerships between certain community colleges to get people's yep. math and science skills up. But am I hearing what you're saying that um, when we think about the private sector, there needs to be more investment also in helping adults with low literacy skills to Absolutely. get to that point. Because that's where our population growth is in the state, is in the new 
immigrants. If we did not have new immigrants coming into the state, we would be losing people. So we need to bring those skills up to the next level. Um, I mean, we teach math. STEM is the big, you know, the, I have multiple degrees. I could not do advanced manufacturing. So there, there is a, it has to be a, a combination of, of forces coming in to resolve this. You can join our conversation here on literacy on where we live. Again, 36 million Americans struggle to read and write. Uh, on the phone with us, uh, again, is Kevin Morgan, president and CEO of ProLiteracy, an international nonprofit based in Syracuse. Uh, Kevin, when we think about the types of jobs available out there in our economy for low literate Americans. So what kind of jobs um, are they um, having to take? And is there evidence that private sectors are stepping up to help uh, some of these workers? Yeah, it's finally happening. I think 10 years ago, a lot of times when we would talk to employers and try to get them to invest in adult education for their workers, they were actually concerned that if they educated their workers, they may leave. And so now what we're seeing is uh, you have companies, there's a lot of examples out there recently where uh, Taco Bell, for instance, some, some of the hospitality industry uh, hotels are actually funding high school equivalency education for their workers and post-secondary education. So they recognize that not only is that a recruitment tool to attract workers, but it's also a great tool to keep workers and promote workers from within. It just makes good economic sense uh, if you want to attract workers. Uh, I heard CJ's comment earlier in the program about, you know, a lot of the blue-collar jobs, the entry-level blue-collar jobs, they really don't exist anymore in the sense that no one's going to hand you a hammer and say, hit that anymore. It's going to be um, operate the computer so that you can operate the plasma cutter to cut the steel. Even the blue-collar jobs have some digital component to them, So you have to be able to interact with technology. You need to be able to read. And some of the other workforce skills, you know, just being able to work within a team atmosphere, showing up on time, those are all things that um, help people prepare for the workforce. Kirk is calling from East Hartford. Kirk, uh, what's your question or comment? Well, this question is for CJ. I'm a small business owner in East Hartford. And what, as an individual, or even as a small business owner, can I do to help support the program? Because I think it affects not only us in East Hartford, but you know, clearly Hartford as well. I would love for you to uh, place a phone call and you and I can talk. Um, because there is a lot of things that a small business person can do, including, uh, I mean, we may have, if you're looking for employees, we may be able to help you with that. We may be helpful to just get the word out to your employees that we are a service that, that is available in East Hartford. Um, you probably have some employees, May, who, who are low literate that we could help. So let's talk, please. So we'll pass along uh, Kirk's uh, phone number uh, to our in-studio guest, CJ House, Executive Director of Literacy Volunteers of Greater Hartford. CJ, thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Also on the phone with us was Kevin Morgan, president and CEO of ProLiteracy, an international nonprofit based in Syracuse, New York. Kevin, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up after the break, many schools and sports teams across the country in recent years have dumped names and logos that are considered offensive to Native Americans. In the town of Killingly, Connecticut, the school board tried to do the same by changing the mascot name from Redmen to Red Hawks. But the status of that name change is now up in the air. Connecticut Public's Frankie Graziano will join us with the latest, and you can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We know many of you tune into Where We Live on your car radio or stream us live at WMPR. You can also subscribe to Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please give our podcast a rating and a review. This helps us introduce more podcast listeners to Where We Live. Now back to the show. Last summer, the town of Killingley's Board of Education voted to drop the Redmond mascot that its high school sports team had been using for 80 years because it was offensive to Native Americans. Newly elected school board members wanted the name back. Where does the mascot name stand now? Connecticut Public's Frankie Graziano is here with an update. Frankie, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Uh, so our understanding is uh, the Killingly Board of Education, this is the town in the, the quiet corner of Connecticut, the northeast part of the state. Uh, they originally voted to change the name of the mascot. So tell us a little bit about what led up to that point. Yeah, a town in the quiet corner having a loud stance on, on mascots here. But essentially what happened was over the summer, the town board had gotten an opinion back from a tribe that was in central Massachusetts and that part of Connecticut uh, called the Nipmunk Tribe. And they had said uh, before they got the opinion that, look, if they say that they don't like this name, we're done. We're changing it. And the Nipmunk tribe said that any logo imagery name that shouts out Native Americans, whether they think it's positive or negative, is offensive. So after that, they went ahead with the name change, and the students even came up with a, with another name called Red Hawks. But the other night, um, we saw something come to a head that's been brewing for a few months that involves people changing, uh, I guess, parties over the board after a November election. So this has all come to pass, and now it's a clear division in the town between people that want to see the Red Men name reinstated and some people that like to see something new that's not offensive. Uh, there's a op-ed by the Hartford Current that described, again, the, the mascot, the Red Men, which featured an, an image of a Native American in a headdress, and the football team's helmets uh, were also adorned with images of feathers. So, Frankie, tell us, when you were at that meeting, who were some of the people who came out to advocate to support this recent name change from Red Men to the Red Hawks? During the public comment section, uh, a bunch of people came out, uh, some from out of town, um, but mostly it was people that were from the Killingly area that maybe had an attachment to the name or didn't. Most actually that spoke wanted to see the name changed to the Red Hawks or, or whatever, a name that's not offensive. One of them was Barbie Gardner, who's a Killingly High alum. She's also a member of the Chibana Gungamung Band of Nipmunk Native Americans, some of those are, that are in favor of reinstatement, Lucy, say that it honors the town's Native history. She emphatically says it doesn't. While I recognize that your mascot is a strong part of your local identity and acknowledge that this change is painful for some to consider, we cannot ignore the fact that the imagery depicted in your logo is inaccurate to the people it is supposed to represent. Tribal nations, not just the Nipmunks, but the Pequot tribe that's in the area and also the, the Mohegan tribe, they say that this name is offensive. They've come out with official statements. Mm. So let's get back to uh, this election that happened uh, where, again, the Killingly Board of Education, so our listeners are following last summer, uh, voting to change the name to the Red Hawks. Then there was that local election uh, that you mentioned, and the newly elected board members wanted the name back to Redmond. They certainly did. Um Doug Farrow was one of those uh, those people. He's the vice chairman of the board. He told me that this was the first meeting since Election Day. So that's why there was a lot of nerves around it. And there was a vote. And Doug Farrow is the Republican. He's one of them that voted for reinstating the mascot. 
you know, personally, I felt a mandate um, from the November 5th election that um, a lot of people just wanted to bring the, the Redmen name back. Uh, but we didn't want to do it. We didn't want to do it status quo. We wanted to try and do it better this time. And that meant honoring the tradition of the Redmen warriors. And Lucy, he told me that members, including himself, actually ran on this issue. He's an incumbent. But some of the new members that came on, it's now a majority Republican. Um, they ran on the issue. I, I even saw one of the ads that said, they're trying to change the red men name now what are they going to do next i assuming that means uh who's ever against these these republicans that are running it is surprising when you think about uh, again local elections specifically the board of education you think about uh uh, people who are interested in the quality of schools but this mascot issue is really taken front and center the opposition to doug farrow uh howine flexer uh she's she's a democrat on the board uh one of three democrats i believe that are on that board She tells me that, look, this has become an adult issue, and it's a shame that we're going against something the students decided. Eighty percent of the students, um, at least from what I understand, voted for the Red Hawks name, and and the town was ready to move on. I can tell you that at least the school was ready to move on because one, uh, I believe it was the golf coach, spoke at that assembly. Also, the athletic director, who's been silent on this issue, spoke and said, we are ready to move on. The kids are ready to move on. So that's been the argument from from the side that says, let's get rid of the red men name. They're, they're saying that the kids are down to do this. So why can't we honor what our kids are saying? Which means uh, stick with the Red Hawks. Stick with the Red Hawks. But that's um, I, I don't want to spoil it, Lucy, but that ain't going <laughs> to happen, it looks like. So what's the mascot now? All right, Lucy, so this was a five-hour marathon meeting, and I'll spare you what happened the entire meeting, but what it comes down to is it seems like towards four and a half hours, something like that, in, we have a vote, and the first vote was about the Red Hawks name, and in a five-to-four decision, they've dropped the Red Hawks name. So the Red Hawks name will no longer apply to Killingly sports teams. So then later on in the night, we get back into, I guess, what the crux of the issue was for some of the new board members. They decide that they're going to vote on this issue. And I'll just set it up for you, Lucy. It's 4-4 at this point. So now we're deciding whether or not um, it's going to be Redmen or if they're going to have, I guess, no mascot name. And the final decision, the ninth vote, came to the chairperson of the board. He abstained. He decided he wasn't going to vote at all on the issue. He said that this has divided the town enough. Maybe we should find a name that, that respects the Red Hawks or it respects the Red Men. He, he wanted to see less division, I guess. That's at least what he told me. Was that surprising for the people that were in that room that night? It, it, it generally was a surprise. And, and the net result of that, Lucy, they don't have any mascot name right now. After all of that, it's not Red Hawks. It's not Red Men. The issue will continue. No mascot name. So, Frankie, what are the next steps for the town? So it's rather confusing. I haven't gotten an official word, but I've talked to people on both sides of the issue. And when I talked to one of the Republican board members after the meeting, I had been told that the goal, I guess, is to get eventually some kind of vote from the people in the town. Some uh, some of the critics of the plan say that it would be a non-binding referendum, which means that while people would be able to vote for it on a ballot or something like that, it wouldn't stand legally. But one way around that, I guess, from what I understand, is to throw it to the town council, let them decide whether or not it's an issue they want to take up, and then they can ask the secretary of the state's office to put it on the ballot next election day. So this could take a long time, from what I understand, to really, I guess, be resolved. And for now, at least, 
It looks like some members of the board are trying to come up with some kind of bipartisan committee to take a look at the issue, um, but it doesn't look like there's going to be a mascot name anytime soon. Put this into context for us, Frankie. This is not the first town in Connecticut uh, where there was a school mascot where the town had to figure out, is this something that we need to change because it is offensive to uh, certain uh, people, including uh, Native Americans? Uh, What else has happened in the state? So I want to give you some national context first, because I spoke to a guy named Paul Lucas. He works for UniWatch, and and basically for the last 20 years, he's watched names, logos, uniforms. They also, under their purview, watch the mascot discussion. Paul told me that he's never seen a school district, town, team, whatever, change a logo that's considered offensive to Native Americans and then go back. So Killingly, and, and by all accounts, even me doing the research, Killingly would be the first team, town, nationally, to go back to a name that's been considered offensive. So that's mm-hmm. that's pretty amazing, at least locally. Um, if you're asking for that context, I mean, Killingly originally changed the name to Red Hawks. What about the town of seen, Manchester? Yes, Man- Manchester, right around the same time, they did the same thing. Um, uh, in recent years, we saw Northwest Catholic and West Hartford go from being the Indians to the Lions. Um, so we've seen this a lot locally and Killingly was trying to really, I guess, be at the forefront of the issue because there's still a bunch of team names that are out there that are still considered offensive. The Montville Indians, um, the Newington Indians, and there's a bunch of programs out there that have warriors and raiders, which many would say is derogatory mm-hmm. to Native Americans. Frankie Graziano is a reporter for Connecticut Public. As always, Frankie, we appreciate you coming on today. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me on, Lucy. We'll tweet out a link to Frankie's story at Where We Live. First, it's the end of the year campaign. If you appreciate the programs that you hear on WNPR, Connecticut Public Radio, including Where We Live, we ask you to support us now. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to do it, and thanks.